Welcome to episode 146 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing fine. You sound great. You sound excited. Is that because we're back onto Bookcast? I am excited for Bookcast. I love I love Bookcast because I love reading and I love sharing what I'm reading about. So it's like a perfect opportunity. It does seem like the perfect opportunity to be super nerdy because we love conversing. We love podcasts and we love reading. So let's just jam all those things into one thing. Yep. Let's do it. Before yeah, but, we do so that... Before, <laughs> oh man i love that we both want to do the segue man it's like we're brothers or something go ahead oh so i could do okay so before we we're just gonna pretend like that didn't happen <laughs> so before if we, we had more higher budget we'd edit that all out and it would just yeah. sound really seamless but no it's too far gone no no editing before we do that let's see what we're affirming and denying this week do you want to go first i will so this is something that I feel like I should be affirming every week, um, but today is like especially uh, pertinent, I think, because we're doing preaching cast or preaching by Joel Beakey cast or whatever. Um, I'm affirming my pastor. So he just had a really, really on point, like excellent exegetical sermon this morning. And I've said this before, like, I don't I don't remember the last time that like dad preached a stinker like that happens to everybody who's preaching i don't remember the last time that was but today's sermon was just it was really on point it was really good it kind of hit like all the points that you needed to hit and you know going into this um discussion today of reform preaching like it was definitely an experiential sermon like he he pushed all the right buttons to make sure that it really landed i mean i can only speak for myself but it really landed on my heart so i'm just affirming my pastor and his preaching today here, here. I can get behind that. That's also kind of a testimony and a challenge for all brothers and sisters. Affirm your pastors every yeah. now and again, especially the effort they put into preaching, prepping in the word and their prayerful consideration of it and then delivery of it to you. Yeah. That man, if you've got that, you just got to affirm that once in a while and say, hey, thank you. You do. What about you? I was worried that we were going to have maybe the same affirmation. So I'm relieved because... I want to affirm something that I knew was coming and I've been super excited about. And then it happened on Friday. Oh, man. And it's better than I could have anticipated. Oh, man. One of the... I love that you're getting excited because this is going to be great (laughs) for you. One of, I think, the great current Christian rock bands is Wolves at the Gate. And on July 26th, they released their new album, Eclipse. And man, in this day and age, there's so much hype around music because they've got all these mediums through which to promote it. They'll often drop, you know, early songs to give you some kind of sense of the release. And that can build a hype that just cannot be attained when the album actually releases. This was not that case. Yeah. The hype is for real. So everybody, <laughs> if you are a person, if you're a person, you should go out and get this album. It's called Eclipse by Wolves at the Gate. You will not be sorry. You will not be sorry. What will we not be sorry? There's no way you're going to be sorry. <laughs> If you get this, if you get this album now, now I have so. to ask: Is this is this like Jesse and Ashley kind of music, or is this like music real people will like? That's a really great question, and I presume when you said Jesse and Ashley music, what you're asking is: Is it good? Yes, the answer <laughs> is: It is astounding. It's so it's a little bit of the harder variety, but it's not what I think some people would it would be too hard for most. Okay. It's, it's a good mix. It's like this is a gateway into a world, if you've never experienced before, that, that you should. But what I appreciate about this band, among other things, is the music is incredibly thoughtful. I think it's difficult a lot of times to find really thoughtful Christian music that is theologically rich and deep and also very contemporary uh, in like kind of a, just a harder style. And these guys just don't disappoint. It's creative. It's complex. It's technical. And you can sit, this is one of those albums, I don't know if you have a band like this or any band for that matter like this, where when you get the album, what you want to do is just sit down with the lyrics and just put on a good set of headphones and just listen and absorb every word and see, this is one of those groups. So it's, it's definitely worth it. It's, it's a very, I think, profound experience. Now I've already given it way too much hype and people are going to be <laughs> like, yeah, it just fell flat. But no, this is, you know, that saying like never meet your 
idols because you'll be, well, you should not have idols. <laughs> That's the end of that sentence. Never meet those like you really look up to your heroes because you'll be disappointed. This was definitely not one of the situations. It came with a lot of hype and it definitely has lived up to it. Okay. Well, I will take your word for it. So let's move on to denials. So this is a little bit of a somber denial. Um, this is not going to be a surprise to anybody who is exists on the world of the Christian Internet, if that's even a thing. Um, but I'm denying the apostasy of Joshua Harris. Have you heard about uh, this? Yes. Yeah. So Joshua Harris, who... Quite frankly, I think uh, rose to prominence uh, at far too young of an age and with too much speed. Um, he was the author of a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye, um, which take it or leave it. Um, it kind of kicked off the beginning of what sometimes is known as purity culture, uh, which can be a bit of a wax nose. Sometimes purity culture just means being concerned for biblical sexual ethics. Uh, and sometimes purity culture, uh, means a lot more than that, but no matter how you slice it, Joshua Harris kicked off kind of a, a reinvigorated interest and sort of a new methodology when it comes to talking about sexual purity and how it is that Christians are supposed to interact with each other in romantic ways. Um, and then he, uh, he became a pastor. He wrote a book that actually was really influential on with me called Dug Down Deep, which was kind of a sort of a entry level systematic theology, but it was written in sort of this approachable um, kind of conversational style. And then he sort of had a little bit of an embattled career. So he had uh, a period where he was uh, kind of high up in Sovereign Grace Ministries with C.J. Mahaney, and that denomination was kind of plagued with accusations of sexual misconduct and uh, cover-up and all sorts of stuff. And then it seems like he went a little bit dark for a while, and then kind of out of nowhere um, in the last year or so, he's been real active again. And so it started, he, he wrote an article kind of decrying uh, his... Uh, decrying purity culture and sort of apologizing for the book I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And at the time, there was just sort of this like sinking feeling that I had that like, oh, this is the beginning of something, something bad. And I actually share some of his concerns um, or at the time I shared some of his concerns with what is known as purity culture on the more extreme side of things. It can be very legalistic. It sort of takes your eyes off the gospel. Um, and then, I don't know, maybe like two weeks ago, he announced that him and his wife were getting a divorce. And then uh, just the other day, he released a statement on Twitter uh, or on uh, Instagram. And I'm just going to read it. And it's it's pretty heavy. So I'm, I'm going to do my best not to make any jokes because it's not really a joking matter. He says, uh, my heart is full of gratitude. I wish you could see all the messages people sent me after the announcement of, a of my divorce. They're an expression of love, though they are saddened or even strongly disapprove of the decision. I'm learning that no group has a market on grace. This week I've received grace from Christians, atheists, evangelicals, ex-evangelicals, straight people, LGBTQ people, and everyone in between. Of course, there have also been strong words of rebuke from religious people. While not always pleasant, I know they are seeking to love me. They've also been spiteful, hateful, and angered and hurt me. The information that was left out of our announcement is that I've undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me that there's a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there. Um, and then he goes on to quote Martin Luther about something. Um, he says that he's lived a life of repentance for several years, repenting of his self-righteousness, his fear-based approach to life. Um, a couple things he talks about in, you know, repenting of the books he wrote. Um, and then he, he basically goes on to say, uh, to his Christian friends, I'm grateful for your prayers. Don't I uh, don't take it personally if I don't immediately return your calls. I can't join in your mourning. I don't view this moment negatively. I feel very much alive and awake and surprisingly hopeful. Um, and then he says, I believe with my sister Julian that all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. Is that Julian of Norwich he's quoting? I think so. I think so. So uh, this is just a sad moment. Um Anytime that a Christian falls away, um, it, it's a sad moment because, 
you know, there's the passage in, I think it's the gospel of Luke where it says, you know, when, when a sinner repents, the angels rejoice in heaven over one sinner uh, repenting. And on some level, even though we don't have a biblical statement to this effect, I have to imagine that there's an equally profound sense of loss and sadness in the angelic host when someone who was a, a part of God's covenant people, who was outwardly united to the church, who was um, professing faith, who was by all uh, outward measurements, a, a Christian, when they walk away from that, um, it's a profoundly sad and serious thing. Um, so I don't, I don't really have much more commentary on that. Um, we did an episode, uh, it was episode 88, uh, which was on apostasy and Derek Webb and, and their stories from what I can see actually, uh, track along very similar, uh, similar trajectories. There's kind of this meteoric rise to fame at a relatively young age. There's a, a level of teaching, uh, authority and responsibility that's sort of invested in them that that probably is not appropriate at the time. And then it's just sort of there's a peak and then there's a there's a drop. And at some point that drop just hits a cliff. So pray for Joshua Harris. Um, you know, I don't I don't really know. I'm still working through how it is we're supposed to pray for those who have apostatized. Uh, because the scripture seems to indicate that once a person has made that decision, that there really is no turning back. Um, and I'm not sure exactly how to reconcile that and how to grapple with it. But pray for Joshua Harris. Pray for the church. Um, pray for his family. He's got young kids. He's got uh, his wife that he's divorcing. Um, this is going to impact a lot of people. And there's a lot of people who... Um, for better or worse, will be shaken by this because their faith is in some sense grounded in the reality of sort of this, uh, this universe, this galaxy that revolved around Joshua Harris in different ways, the center of gravity that he was, um, there's going to be ripples and impacts throughout different sectors of the church that I think could be really bad. So we should, we should pray for him, pray for his family, uh, and pray for the church. There is an appropriate space in the midst of that announcement to have some mourning, because like you said, for those who have been influenced and sometimes appropriately by what he's written, by some of the things that he's expressed, it's very difficult in a time like this. And I think part of what has made this especially difficult and especially interesting is his statements so far have been really a very candid and complete renunciation yeah. of not only his faith, but basically everything he wrote. Yeah. And I find that it's troubling, of course. In some ways, it's refreshing in the sense that he's recognizing that this is apostasy. He's really not calling it anything other but that. Yeah. And, and what's particularly disturbing beyond that is how deep he is setting, kind of uprooting everything that he has invested his life into thus far, especially in the public eye. So he had an additional statement that he made to the LGBTQ plus community. And he says, quote, I want to say that I'm sorry for the views that I taught in my books and as a pastor regarding sexuality. I regret standing against marriage equality for not affirming you and your place in the church and for any ways that my writing and speaking contributed to a culture exclusion and bigotry. I hope you can forgive me. Yeah. Quote. I mean, that is a really profound statement. Yeah. And when I come across a situation like this with all its severity, first I am enveloped by sadness, like you've already said. Yeah. And second, what really follows on the heels of that feeling is a real sense of fear. When we, when we like forsake the Lord in our reliance on him, on our contingency as beings in every conceivable way with him, it just makes me fearful that this can happen and it does happen. Yeah. And like you said, sometimes it's a result of a particular set of circumstances. There is in some ways a pattern, an arc, a trajectory where we see this more often than not. That is always true. But this kind of thing should drive us back to the scriptures. This is why Paul says, test everything. So even these guys, even the stuff we're writing, is say, well, these guys seem like they're so well-adjusted. They're very popular. They've been vouchsafed some kind of public platform which to speak these things and to write all this good stuff. Yeah. We still need to always be testing it. Yeah. Uh, because it's not that we should always be testing it thinking, well, maybe in hindsight, this is not going to be good because this person is going to basically abdicate everything that they believe. It's more so we just need to be wise people. And we need to be wise also about our hearts and whom holds them. And so I'm always filled with both sadness and a sense of fear. Yeah. And to maybe to kind of close that up, um, you know, the scripture 
The scripture commands us to make our calling and election sure. And it, it doesn't yes. mean to make ourselves elect or to call ourselves. It's not saying that we, by our good works or by anything in us, somehow um, change our status as elect or not elect. But what it is saying is that um, th- those who are elect should take steps to demonstrate the evidence of that election. Um, which uh, Peter goes on to say is basically the, the the way you do that is by living a life of righteousness and holiness. And and where he where he comes down that's directly applicable in this is towards the end. He says those who are practicing these things or those who are who have these qualities and are increasing in them will never fall away. And so you know there there's. There's a whole discussion to be had about concursus and divine sovereignty, and we talked about some of those things in the Derek Webb episode, but one of the things that I think is important for us to remember is that God's decree is what establishes us as free agents, free creatures, in that we make a decision to follow Jesus. We actually do of our own volition, we make a decision to follow Jesus. We, Joshua Harris made a decision to fall away from Jesus and that was his decision. So, so this sometimes hyper Calvinistic approach that, well, you know, I'm elect, so I can't fall away. Well, if you are elect, then no, you can't fall away. But the the way that you know that you're elect is by not falling away. And so God, God calls us to actively pursue righteousness and salvation every minute of every day. And so we should always be thankful for and remembering and actively trusting in Christ, right? Faith is the open hand that receives Christ. But once that open hand has received Christ, we still have a responsibility to cling to Christ, to hold fast to Christ. And we can right. know that those who are his, he will hold fast to them. So if, if anything comes out of this in terms of our podcast and our listenership, Hold fast to Christ because any one of us could fall away if it were not for the mercy of God. Exactly. And so the only thing that we can do is throw ourselves on his mercy and to be obedient in whatever sense we can to his commands. And that's for me where that fear enters. It's a holy dread that we ought to never, I want to never have lack passion for Christ, never have a heart that becomes even in the smallest way bent toward complete destruction and turning away or sensitivity to the things of the Holy Spirit and the gospel, never wanting to quench the work of the Holy Spirit in my life towards sanctification. So it's those kind of things which I think should rightly make us fall on our knees in holy dread of God and say, yeah, you are holy. Keep me, God. Keep me every day. Yeah. I need you. Yeah. Well, now that I've brought this down as far as it possibly can go, can you bring us back towards the middle with a... <laughs> With your denial? I do have a more lighthearted denial, but I, I actually want to thank you for bringing that up because I think that's, this is the kind of thing we should be talking about because it's yeah. the kind of thing that is in our faces and a lot of people don't even know how to speak about this or why it's happening. So I think it's good for us always to be kind of dialoguing about this type of stuff as it comes up. And so my denial is, I'm kind of looking for a little bit of feedback and help, maybe some insight from you on this denial. I'm denying a mystery that I have yet to solve that is super weird. And I'm just going to say that right at the front because it's going to get weird for a second. So here we go. So (laughs) I I have this happen to me a, a fair amount, but never to this degree. So occasionally, I don't know if this happens to you, but I come home from work. I notice that I've got like just a little bit of mark of ink on like my pants, like almost like I held the pen down by my leg or something and I I just brushed it and there's a a mark of ink. Does that happen to you with any kind of frequency or at all? Uh, I wear pretty dark pants most of the time, so probably (laughs) and I just don't realize it. I don't like you wear a lot of like like beige or like khaki slacks. I wear mostly like black and dark gray because I'm colorblind. So, Uh, well, there we go. Well, th- that's maybe where I need to go. So check this out. So on Thursday, I came home and I had been at work. I came home briefly. I went to church, came back and I'm looking at the pants I wore and I was like, ah, oh, I got another mark, like just a really slight mark that looks like ballpoint pen on the front of my pants, like at like the kind of knee level. Now, first, what's weird about this, where the mystery starts to build is that I don't use a ballpoint pen and it was black. I use like a blue fountain pen. So I'm not even sure how that happened, but I was like, whatever, stuff happens. So then I'm going to put the pants away 
and I turn them over, and here's where it just gets freakishly weird. On the left side of my butt, it's like somebody had taken the same black pen and scribbled all over. Like we're talking about <laughs> a massive amount of ink on my left butt. Like a, like a crazy amount. Almost like I was like, wow, what even happened here? So I've been trying to trace this back. Like obviously the, uh, like the easy answer would be I must have sat on a pen somewhere. But I can't find this pen anywhere. It's not in the car. I don't think it happened at work because I think somebody would have told me. So it must have happened between when I went to the church in the car. I did sit in a pew for a little while. Then I stood and we played some music and I came home in the same vehicle I went to church with. I can't find a pen anywhere. I went back to that pew today. I can't find a pen anywhere. I have no idea this happened, but it's like an obnoxious amount. Like it's almost like I would have had to sit on the pen and then rub my butt for like five or ten minutes all over to get this much ink. It's, it's literally like a child took this pen and just, just drew all over. So is it, like, um, is it like dark black or is it kind of faint? It, so that's a really <laughs> – I love this game we're playing now. That's a really good question. It's, it's dark enough. Like there are parts of it that were more faint – but it literally it looked like somebody had just gone to town on my butt. That's something I didn't intend to say, <laughs> but it happened. Uh, this just became a PG-13 podcast. Woo. I'm going to have to change our rating on iTunes. It's getting hot in here. Uh, that E is for explicit butt talk. Um, I'm going to throw a theory out there. Please. That it's not actually pen. So I think oh. that okay. probably what it was because this has happened to me with like a white shirt is it was actually probably a piece of lead from like a mechanical pencil. Cause so think about like a mechanical pencil, right? you make the lead a right. little bit too long and then it right. breaks yep. off and the little piece of lead flies off somewhere. I think that's probably what it was, was a piece of lead had gotten like on the, like the pew of the chair or maybe in your car or something like that. That's actually a really good theory. I hadn't completely conceived of that. And so that might be helpful because right now, as we speak, I'm trying to treat the butt of those pants with like some kind of special like rubbing alcohol and like stain remover specifically for pen. It's not really working. Not great. So there might be hope. Maybe if I just throw them in the washer, maybe will come out. Is this uh, is this the the butt cheek where you also <laughs> keep your wallet? So that's another great question. This really is kind of like a game now. Yeah. It's great. So, fun fact, I don't keep my wallet in my back pocket. That's true. Neither do I because you convinced me not to do that. So, I have a tough time believing because, like, also, like, I'm holding up a pen to the to the camera here. Now, like, yeah. you, if you sit on a pen, <laughs> right, like... You can't like forensic. Like you're not gonna you're not gonna write on your butt if you're sitting on the flat side of the pen. So yes. like you'd have to sit on the point, which I have to think you would notice. Uh, listen, I agree. I mean, I would like to think my butt is as sensitive as anybody's, and if I'm gonna sit on a pen, I think you would notice that. And it's so. it's not coming out with like 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 al rubbing alcohol and like you 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 can't just wash not it off. Not yet. Not yet. Is it so smearing I'll keep at all? You posted. Uh, not really. Then it's not pen, because if it was pen, then the rubbing alcohol would definitely at least smudge it a little. Well, it's smudging it slightly, but it's not, like, making it worse. It's coming out, but just, like, very, very slowly. So I will keep you posted. I think the only answer is for you to color your entire pants black with a Sharpie <laughs> just to cover the whole thing to take care of it. I can't imagine how super awkward and weird those pants would be if I did that. <laughs> that seems like something, like, an angsty teenager would do. Yeah, that's very true. So yeah. all that long explanation, I'm just denying against weird, strange mysteries and why I keep getting stuff on my pants. Like I look like the kind of person that cannot control himself because I'm always coming home with stuff on my pants. <laughs> I spill food on myself all the time. And you know this. I, I Sometimes but, I'll have a shirt for like a week and, my, and Ashley's like, you just have a big stain on your shirt. But at least like there, you know, okay, I was eating, enjoying food and something fell here. I'm just like, what is even happening? Yeah, sometimes it doesn't match up to anything. Like sometimes I'll have like a big oil <laughs> spot on a shirt and I'm like, <laughs> I had no oils at all today. I had a peanut butter. Like there's sometimes there's no, there's no reason for it. 
Uh, well, I guess that is awkward too. So I'm, then I'll just deny against all that stuff. It's just spilling stuff on you, getting stains on you that you can't figure out where they came from, and just feeling like, wow, what is happening in my Let, life? Let's get really nerdy on this. Maybe your pants temporarily crossed into an alternate dimension where some little kid scribbled on your fanny. It's possible. It's possible. At this point, I'm willing to accept that as a plausible theory. It's probably about as plausible as the tiny piece of lead theory that I put forward. I like, is that what we're calling it now? Tiny lead theory? Tiny lead theory, I, yeah. That's actually really decent, though. It, but here's what's, do you know, like, what do they call those things? Like a spiral graph, you know what I'm talking about? Like yeah. Like when you put the pen in. I love those, those things. Theories. It looks like that. That's what makes it weird. Yeah. Like, I would have had, yeah, anyway. I mean, I can't imagine what kind of movement I would have had to done, like the hip movement required for me to manufacture that with a static object writing. So this, I mean, we could just go on forever at this point. So, so I guess we should really We could get take into the scholastic method and I could ask how many angels can scribble on Jesse's fanny <laughs> without him noticing. And the answer is at least one. At least one. Yeah. At least one. Well, this seems like as good as any time. <laughs> To trash, to trash, to transition into, to just trash that whole first part of the podcast, basically. Let's, welcome to the reform. <laughs> we'll just start over. Ser seriously, here we go. Welcome to episode 146.1. So let's get into Bookcast. Yes. And we're talking about Joel Beakey's book, Reform Preaching. Nice. And he's moving us through some more examples of Reform Preachers. And the first thing you and I have to decide before we go any further is how are we going to say this name? What way do you prefer? Uh, well, I don't think it's a matter of a preference. It's, it's Theodore Beza, isn't it? Yes, that's how I would say it. Too. Yeah. Okay. Do, do people say something else? I've heard Beza. Beza? Who says Beza? Yes. <laughs> Europeans? I don't know. I, I've definitely heard Beza, but I think it was from a guy who is English. Oh, figures. Yeah, it, it's possible. So we're talking about Theodore Beza, who is a successor of Calvin. You just said Beza. Did I just say We it? just had this whole segment about getting on the same page, <laughs> and then you said Beza. This whole thing is lost. <laughs> uh, this is going to go okay. into archives. I, I've got it now. Okay. So we're talking about Theodore Beza, Beza yeah. who was the successor to Calvin at, at his church. And this is a, a short little chapter, but it's kind of for me packed with some interesting observations. And the first thing I just want to talk about was almost this kind of anecdotal side comment that Beaky puts out that now, now I have to think about how I'm saying it every time, how Beza's <laughs> conversion to Protestantism resulted from him actually go undergoing some like really bad physical suffering. Yeah. Of course there was emotional components to that as well. And it just got me thinking like how much of God's people, especially those whom God leads to some kind of public ministry that has a very profound impact. How many of them know the fire that comes in the furnace, the heat of that kind of experience yeah. and how in some ways, like we shouldn't shy away from that kind of experience, like leaning into it, not seeking out that kind of pain and suffering, but just how many, when you look through the guys that we've been talking about underwent a really profound amount of suffering in their life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think um, part of that is just the era. I mean, we live in a, we live in a, period of relative peace, at least in the Western world. Um, and, and like things like a cold could be fatal back then, you know, Calvin, sure. Calvin, when he was in, you know, a younger pastor talks about having a toothache that he just couldn't do anything about. And I think we, we take, uh, we take for granted sort of the creature comforts of the modern era. Um, and those, those kinds of things really did, influence former generations of Christians in ways that I think we can't even imagine. Right. Yeah. They're right on about that. And, and this just reminds me per your denial earlier that here's another example where often God is using those things not to disquiet us per se, but to move us in a direction where we are falling in complete dependence upon him. Yeah. It's just interesting that that is the thing. Like that's the, all these guys, a lot of them studied interestingly enough in some kind of legal capacity. So they're, amazingly brilliant. Right. And yet what we can see is that wasn't enough. It was never enough. And of course we know that at kind of an intuitive level, but at the same time, it just makes it seem like here we have these guys who are smart. They're studying really complicated things. And what God does is he wrecks them. He wrecks them personally yeah, and physically often. 
and then brings into that sometimes there's suffering in their own families like you talked about they're just the prevalence of death by way of so many other means having children die having spouses die uh, b- having your home taken away from you being cast out of your society that is fortunately something that in the west mostly we don't have to worry about right but here's a guy that came to protestantism uh, out of catholicism not because like he was wicked smart studied everything and thought well this is the way to go but because god wrecked him yeah and I think there's something in that that is informative for us. It's illustrative in often how God works and how when we come across similar circumstances, in some ways it's encouraging to know that here are these men and women who've experienced this. And we ought to take great comfort in knowing that this is often how God works. He does allow us to feel sometimes the heat of that furnace so that we might cling to him more closely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, there's this picture there's this picture in the church history books, really of the entire Reformed tradition, um, but especially of Theodore Beza, of this qu- kind of scholastic, almost yes. like um, almost like a bookworm who doesn't really understand reality, like 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 uh, Sheldon from uh, Big Bang Theory. Like he's this ridiculously brilliant guy who doesn't understand social cues. He doesn't understand what it's like to be a real person. And so he has this sort of abstract view on reality that influences theology such that like he's not really of any practical use except to sort of like figure out what went wrong in the reform tradition. Um, That's kind of like the popular picture you get of Theodore Beza, even from some legitimately reformed sources. Um, There are a lot of infralapsarians that want to try to say, well, well, Calvin was obviously a, an infralapsarian and Beza screwed it all up. And so his his influence on the reform tradition is really a negative one. And that that's just not I mean, there might be an element of truth to that and that he is even more so than Calvin. He's kind of the superlapsarian theologian kind of par excellence. But he's he's not that cold calculating theologian that I think sometimes people make him out to be. And there's so much great stuff in this chapter about exactly that thing. Just how, again, we're talking about experiential preaching. So him being brought up as an example is in itself its own testimony. And one of the things that I just loved, and this is kind of, again, just to give some context to the reader about what it was like, the state of sermons and preaching in Beza's day. And I love these. and I wanted to bring them up to you because I just find these fascinating. So Beaky makes some comments about the fact that toward the end of Calvin's life, in a given week, pastors on average delivered something like 27 sermons. Yeah. So just the expansive nature of the preaching that was going on. And Beza himself preached at St. Pierre's for more than three decades, which right. is just amazing. Here you have a guy rooted in a community, preaching consistently there. Yeah. The other thing I found interesting was that this idea that sermons routinely lasted about 60 minutes and they were enforced by an hourglass, yeah. which I love just that you could see it up there and you knew that this was time dedicated to preaching. Yep. And when the hourglass was done, that at the very least would be when the sermon would also be over. Yeah. And then the last thing in this chapter that's just fascinating in terms of context and environment was this comment that those who did not attend the Lord's Day service in that area were formerly rebuked. Can you imagine? Yeah. I, I wish that we did that more. I mean, I, I'm not one of those people that says, like, there's never a reason to not be in the Lord's Day, um, even even apart from, like, you know, when we talk about the Sabbath, we talk about like works of necessity and things like that. I'm not one of those people who says that it's never okay to miss a, a corporate worship service for, you know, because f- you're on vacation and you can't find a suitable church or something like that, or because you're right. traveling and you have to be traveling, you know. So I, I'm not like that, but I think there are a lot of people who just kind of casually skip church on Sunday. Um, and yes. I would apply this to even to people who like, well, I go to a, I go to a Saturday worship service where it's just worship music. You know, there's a lot of people who are involved in things like that or yeah, well, I go to Bible study on Wednesday, so I'm going to sleep in on Sunday morning and it's, it's just not the same thing. Um, so I think that, that public accountability, that public chastisement for those who neglect, uh, the gathering of the saints, maybe, you know, it certainly can be taken too far, but I would love to see a more serious rebuke by uh, ministers when people in their congregation are not faithful to attend the Lord's day worship. I think it would be very interesting. And I'm not actually saying here by way of these statements that we need to return to some kind of golden age of preaching. Like we need more sermons and we need to have timers up there. But of course, all those things are born out of some kind of, some kind of stress as to the importance of what's happening here. Right. So I just think it's very telling. I almost wonder if we haven't, lost a, a really 
strong sense of seriousness of preaching and attendance on the Lord's day and replaced it instead with this idea that, well, the, the Bible doesn't really, really emphasize that this is something that's a non-negotiable and that we have so many different things nowadays because like you said, I think the tendency for Christians, even well-meaning ones, is that some little thing begins to kind of pry at the, the desire to be there at the Lord's day. And that can be even a good thing. Like, our family can only do the X activity on a Sunday. Right. And so we, we just felt like it, we need, we wanted to be together and spend some time together. It's even those little things. And so here you're saying there's just no excuse. And I, I also think that, you know, we speaking again, of uh, talking about apostasy, we've, we've said very clearly before that in the church is going to be wheat and there's going to be, you know, tear. And, right. and, and the thing is this in some ways is forcing some kind of separation by making a firm commitment. Now, of course you can just attend and just go through the motions, but to be rebuked, like you can, I can imagine some people being like, well, forget this. Like if you're going to call me out, I'm just not going to come. Yeah. Um, as opposed to people just kind of popping in and out. Well, and I think, you know, the, the nature of the church in, you know, um, medieval and reformation Europe was very different than the nature of the church now. And, and obviously like the church is the church is the church. But the fact was like you didn't have the option to just go to another church. So right. if, if you wanted to be a member or part of God's visible body, being at odds with your local congregation for whatever reason was a big deal. And I, I feel like a lot of times, you know, it's not a big deal. Now, um, uh, you know, I was thinking, I was listening to a Carl Truman lecture and he was very open about some of the discipline issues that he had had at his church prior to him leaving when he moved out to um, Grove City to, to change his professorship. And one of the things that he found frustrating was that he um, there was a, a man in there, his church that had been excommunicated for rather significant reasons. Um, and this man went across town to a PCA church, which is supposed to be a sister denomination, right? There's a formal ecclesiastical relationship. And he never even got a phone call from the pastor there asking why, you know, what's going on? Why had this person left before he had, had been joined in fellowship in membership? And I think that we, a lot of times we don't take seriously the fact that the, the church is a visible local body. We have kind of this overly spiritualized understanding of the church. And because of that, sometimes some things in uh, the North American context, particularly things happen that, you know, they really shouldn't. Like if someone leaves a church under under not good circumstances before they are welcomed in membership in another congregation, um, that those circumstances should be resolved. Um, and, and they right. often aren't. And so the, the public rebuke in St. Pierre was very different um, because it would mean you know, if you were, if you were barred from the table, um, you're barred from the table in all of Geneva and, and there's not really any other options. Even if you manage to get to a different church across town in Geneva, and this is where like ministerial associations, I think are, are really important. The, the pastors were meeting on a regular basis to discuss what was going on in their congregations. Um, in Geneva, we have kind of this proto presbytery where all of the different pastors for all the different churches in Geneva are getting together to kind of discuss what's going on. So even if you manage to somehow relocate yourself to a different part of Geneva, you still didn't really have the option of sort of just entering in a new body with, with sort of a blank slate like we do in a lot of our modern contexts. Right. That's well said. I mean, th that's the thing that happens nowadays. It's almost too easy is you could, in theory, stir up trouble at some church and then just move on and yeah. leave it just kind of a trail of destruction behind you without really being held accountable under the scriptures and under the authority of the elders of the pastorate to address the issues that you have. Right. So you can just kind of keep go on this kind of grand tour of destruction without any kind of accountability. Yeah. So there's something about this that I do, my heart leaps at because this idea of really bringing into the family, this wonderful accountability, because in many ways, this is a bit like breaking the law for most of us. It's really not that big a problem. And so it's, it's almost just kind of this, like, let's just be the people that we say that we are. Yeah. If the Lord stays important, we'll show up. And this is not a problem. And so I, I just think it's wonderful to be kind of set that accountability and kind of have that as the baseline level set the expectation. Yeah. You know, there's another thing that I really like that, that Beza did. And like you said, he, he often gets misconceived of this guy who's just like sat in this kind of ivory tower and just pontificated about theological things because he was wicked smart. And that's all true. But on the other hand, here's a man 
who regarded like the sacraments as always connected to the word and its proper administration yeah. in a way that was insanely practical. And so I want to read just quick this quote from Beza that's in the book on page 135. And there's two things I want to talk to you about in, out of this quote because I just think they're really a wonderful and profound. So Beza says that the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ in creating in us by his pure goodness and divine mercy, that which we call faith. In order to create in us this instrument of faith and also to feed and strengthen it more and more, the Holy Spirit uses two ordinary means without, however, communicating to them his power, but working by them, preaching of the word of God and his sacraments. And the first part that really jumped out to me was this idea of the statement in creating in us by his pure goodness and divine mercy, that which we call faith. So not only do we have here this wonderful sense that the progenitor of faith is God himself, but this thing, this belief, the thing that we are calling faith is in fact something that's created out of nothing by God and inserted into us. Yeah. And that is wonderful. This is kind of the very thing that we were just talking about in terms of the apostasy. But what a beautiful statement, right? Yeah. And I think it's important to note, you know, we haven't talked about this much, but Beza was definitely a scholastic theologian. Maybe not in the technical sense, the same way we might talk about like Turretin, who came after Beza in Geneva. Um, but, but Beza was a scholastic in that he used a particular methodology and he was well versed in classical Aristotelian categories. And so, so one one of the things that doesn't often get talked about is the distinction between faith as a habit and faith as an act, right? So exactly. typically when we talk about faith, we're talking about faith as an act. We're talking about receiving Christ. Even if it's a passive act, it's still an act. So we, we say like faith is that which receives Christ. Faith is that which clings to Christ. And it's something that we do, even though it is something that's given to us to do by the Holy Spirit. So the problem with thinking about it only in that category is that faith also is a habit. And what a habit is, is it's a, a capacity or a disposition of the spirit here, not the spirit, but of our spirits, which sort of faith is a socket into. So he creates sort of this capacity for faith, this capacity for belief that doesn't necessarily uh, exercise itself immediately. And that that's what he's talking about here when he says he creates, by this divine mercy, he creates this thing called faith, which is almost like a, a potential that will necessarily be realized at some point in the future. And so, exactly. so we have to understand that, or some of what he's saying here doesn't make a lot of sense. But, you know, he really does narrow in on this um, this preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments. And this is where it, um, this is where it comes in is that faith as a habit is, uh, is what sort of the sacraments and the word, what they latch into. And then that, that is what particularly the word that is what becomes real. The potential of faith becomes real through the preaching of the word. So when, when we talk about the Holy Spirit creating faith in us, we're talking about that internal habit by which the Holy Spirit uh, basically reorients our minds and will towards Jesus Christ. And then he causes that potential to become actual primarily through the preaching of the word and then to yes. grow further to become more and more actual through after the preaching of the word and our conversion through the administration and the reception of the sacraments. Right. I love that. And that's, I think the separation he's driving at right. what you talked about in terms of how we understand faith and it's expressed in this way where here we have God as if to make clear that he is the progenitor, that he is the one that's sovereign and in control of those things. And how does he, in a sense, for lack of a better word, actualize it, but through the ordinary means. Right. And that's the second part that I really loved about the statement where he says he's speaking of these two ordinary means, but he clarifies in a really interestingly nuanced way by saying without, however, and he's talking about the preaching of the word and the sacraments, without, however, communicating to them his power, but working by them. Right. And I think that is a really important distinction because... Sometimes we can, Christians can be accused of like bibliophiles, where we elevate the Bible to such a degree that we almost say, well, it stands on its own because it's the word of God. Right. And even there, the power itself, when you pick up the scriptures, this is beautiful. The power itself is not just in the reading of the words or the print on the page, but it is even though the, or those are the words of God, it is the power of God being worked through them right. into your life. And that distinction where we always point that energy, that focus, that power, that action to God himself is important. 
Yeah, and this this goes back, you can probably understand in the background of this statement, the controversies that had been going on previously with the Roman Catholic Church, but then also now with uh, the Lutheran Church. The, the, the controversy about whether the sacraments operate ex operato uh, right from the working or whether they ap- uh, operate, uh, be, they're apprehended by faith. So the Roman Catholic position is that God, God invests this special spiritual power in the priests and the priests have the ability to communicate that power into these physical things. And by that power, they are able to transform the uh, the bread and the wine. They're able to transform the substance of that. And so they literally are in they're, they're almost like supercharging the sacraments with divine grace, divine power, such that that divine power is present to whoever consumes it. Now, there's some squirrely theology they have to do to, to explain uh, why it is then that a person who is not in a state of grace doesn't receive grace when they consume the sacraments that I honestly don't think is consistent. And then the, the Lutherans, they would operate in a similar fashion, excuse the pun, where they would say that the the body and the blood of Christ is so intimately joined to the sacraments that they really are present to anyone eating them. But where they go, I think is more consistent than the Roman Catholic position is that's why when you if you eat the body or you eat the bread or drink the wine in an unworthy manner, and they would kind of define the unworthy manner as being uh, not in union with Christ. When you consume those elements, you're eating judgment unto yourself because you're taking in divine grace, but you're rejecting at the same time. Right. So he's he's responding to that view that the the elements themselves and and the preaching of the word. Right there there were some in the Reformation, yes. and there are some today that would would argue that just reading the word is necessary necessarily efficacious, just reading it yes. out loud such right. that, that it actually brings about an effect in a person uh, irrespective of what the Holy Spirit may or may not be doing. He's denying that as well. And so what he's saying is that these are the two ordinary channels or ordinary means by which God operates his grace, why his grace flows through these channels ordinarily. And we don't have a lot of ground to, um, to, think that they're operating through other channels, right? There's other other means of grace that the Bible points at that we're not talking about, but through ways that are not appointed by his word, they're flowing through that, but it does not change that this is just bread, this is just wine, and these are this is just ink on a page and sound waves in the air. Unless the Holy Spirit is operative through those ordinary yes. means, they remain ineffectual for salvation. But it's only when right. the Holy Spirit has created faith in the recipient and then operates through those means to to engage that faith or to activate that faith that the the sac- word and sacrament become effectual unto salvation and this is this is classic reform thought and this this carries directly into the Westminster Confession of Faith right i'll look it up the next time Jesse's talking here but but the Westminster Confession of Faith when it's talking about sacraments uses these exact same categories right that the the word becomes effectual unto salvation by the working of the holy spirit and the creation of faith in the recipient Right. All right. So you look that up and I'll talk right now. Okay. So one of the things that I agree with you on that, and one of the things that strikes me about this is that I think there is a lot of contemporary mindset that falls back into that medieval schema because I think sometimes people think they can just appropriate the scriptures, for instance, and just by using them, making them present in some way that there is power in them of and by themselves without that effectual work of the Holy Spirit. And Either that happens or you get the almost exact opposite where there's very little regard for them. And I think sometimes ministers feel like they don't need the word itself to be preached or the sacraments for there to be the effectual power. That there's some other kind of ordinary means that supplants them or is better or is more modern or contemporary or it is more efficacious. And I came across an example of this recently, actually. So while you and I were in Ocean Grove, New Jersey a couple weeks ago... I went to uh, one particular event where a pastor gave up and kind of gave a little bit of a homily. And it was one of those things that became almost instantly awkward because he said something extent of, he was going to speak from 1 John. So he said, I'm going to read a verse from 1 John in just a second. And I don't know if you've ever been to a message where that one second turns into five minutes. Yeah. It turns into 10 minutes. And then all of a sudden it's about stories about in jokes and you, you're, you're like, where is the scripture that you right. said you were going to get to? Like that seemed like it was of prime importance. Like what we're going to do is we're going to read the scripture, but instead it turns into this whole kind of 
you know, show about, you know, jokes and illustrations. Not that any of those things are wrong, but it was clear for this gentleman that it was more important that he make his points about his own experiences, his own little stories, the things that had happened to him recently, than it was to get to the scriptures. Yeah. And so here we have like that in play going against everything that, that Beza is saying here. And by the way, I think in the final analysis of these, these statements, what we're finding is this is good theology for daily living. Right. That's really what he's trying to do. He's yeah. not just trying to bring us theories about how God works, but to make it clear for us so that we understand, yes, we need to be with the Lord's people on the Lord's day because that is a gift. That itself is a means of grace. Yeah. And that we also need to be involved in the sacraments, but why we do those things and where the faith that comes from to make those things a part of our sanctification and godly living. Yeah. So I'm looking at question uh, 155 of the Westminster Larger Catechism. It says, how is the word made effectual to salvation? And the answer is the spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the word an effectual means of enlightening, convincing and humbling sinners of driving them out of themselves and drawing them unto Christ. And then if you scroll down to, uh, uh, question 161, it says, how do the sacraments become effectual means of salvation? And the answer is the state of the sacraments become effectual means of salvation, not by any power in themselves or any virtue derived from the piety or attention of him by whom they are administered, but only by the working of the Holy Ghost and the blessing of Christ by whom they are instituted. So so what that's saying is exactly what we've been talking about, is that the Holy Spirit is the one who makes the preaching of the word, and then in like maybe like sub point one and and the reading of the word, the private reading of the word right. and the sacraments. It's the Holy Spirit that makes those effectual. And that that theology, which is certainly not novel with Beza, but this is the clearest that I've seen it articulated in a, in a, a Reformation uh, thinker. It's certainly present in Calvin and it's it's present even in Luther in a certain sense. Um that is why we talked about it earlier. We kind of joked about it earlier. That's why they get up there with an hourglass and say, we're going to preach the word for 60 minutes. Exactly. And this is the non-negotiable. And that's, exactly. and that's where our services now are very different is that, you know, yes, worship by music. That's very important. Yes. We have to give the announcements. Yes. We have to do the offering. Yes. We have to shake hands and tell everybody good morning. Totally get that. Those are all good, important things. They're, they're fine to do in the corporate gathering of the saints. But those things are not the effectual means of salvation. They are not the ways that God chooses to bring about the salvation of his people. Instead, right. the word preached and the sacraments administered are. This is also why Calvin wanted the sacrament administered every week. And for, you know, the, the council overruled him and said, no, we're going to do it once a quarter. Um, so... That's why when we look at these Reformation era era preachers, and we're going to move into um, the, the Puritan era, or what you might call the Second Reformation thinkers, both on the continent and in England, that's why there's such a premium placed on the preaching of the word, is because the Holy Spirit in the scriptures has revealed to us that this is the place where he meets his people. This is the place where he brings salvation. And so it's not the case that if we don't give, you know, it's not like, um, it's not like the Holy Spirit sitting up there going, oh man, I wish they would get to the preaching so I can, I can bring the salvation. Right, right. Right. That's not, that's not what I'm saying, but the Holy Spirit has promised to meet us in a particular way at a particular time in a particular place when the word is preached and the sacraments are administered. So we should not be surprised or frustrated or angry with God when he does not meet us outside of those times. It's like, exactly. it's like if you and I were going to, you know, we're going on vacation, we're going to Ocean Grove and you say, I'm going to meet you at the beach at six o'clock. And I instead go to the grocery store at two o'clock and I'm like, where is Jesse? I'm so angry because Jesse said he was going to meet me. And you're thinking, why are you mad at me? I told you I was going to be at the beach at six o'clock. You didn't show up. Right. right. So we have to remember, and this is, if if our listeners take away one thing from our 24, we're going to be going through this book for almost two years. The one thing you should take away from this is that the preaching of the word is the central element of Christian worship 
Amen. Period. It's not the sacraments. It's not Chris Tomlin songs. It's not singing the Psalms, although that's a little closer. <laughs> it's the preaching of the word, particularly on the Lord's day. And as a, as an extension of the preaching of the word, it's the administration of the sacraments. And that's right. the, that's the key point that I want to unpack just a tiny bit more before we move on is that the, the sacraments or the ordinances for my Baptist friends, the sacraments are they're extensions of the preaching of the word. They're they're right. not they're not added on. They're not um, they're not a competing means of grace. They're an extension. They're the they're the word made visible and present to our senses. Is kind of the theological language to it. So have you have you ever really heard the sacraments other than like in theological discussions? Have you ever heard that talked about that way in like a church setting? Not so I would say only in like readings of this type. Yeah. Obviously like studying what people have written about them and how they understood them in their proper context. I think most of our churches are lacking in proper education on what the sacraments are and why they're important. Yeah. Yeah, I blame Zwingli, but Yeah, that's true to some extent. I mean I, I'm with you. I think that there's just a, there is a big gap there for most people. They do these things and we know that they're quote unquote good things. We're not really sure why yeah. we're doing them. And even just what you said there is a really wonderfully like great description that's like in a nutshell of like that they're extensions of the scriptures extension of the word and they are for our visible senses right and this goes against this goes right along with everything we've said about this is exactly why for instance the second commandment violation of images of christ are inappropriate because this is real if you're looking to set your eyes on something that is like an extension of your faith then it is manifested in the ordinances yeah and not in some other means yeah and you know the flip side of that, you know, some churches treat uh, the Lord's Supper and the and some in some instances baptism, although baptism doesn't doesn't suffer from this as much, but they treat it almost like it's nothing, like it's it's nothing. Right. Like if we don't do if we don't do communion, that's not a big deal, whatever. And then there's the flip side where it does take on this magical element. You know, I remember. I remember when I was in uh, like college and I was helping out with youth camps, we would always have one night a week where we did communion. And, you know, theologically, I, I now have some concerns about that because it's even though it was a pastor who was doing it, it's not really the right venue or the right context for it. But we did communion. And I remember distinctly that there was kids that would say something to the effect of like, well, I want to get serious about my faith, but communion's not until Wednesday. And so, wow. so there would be this, there would be this understanding that like communion and these were kids, of course, who had been to camps, this, this camp before they were there last sure. summer. So they kind of knew how the, the week was supposed to pinnacle, uh, in communion and this big worship service. And they would wait, they would wait. They would basically like ignore the preaching of the word because the preaching of the word. Yeah. 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 Bible studies. Great. Yeah. These little talks we get are great, but like communion, that's, what's going to engage and activate my faith. And on a certain level, that's true when it's combined with the preaching of the word and preceded by it. And so, yes, they were being preached the word all week. So it's not as though they weren't getting the scriptures. They weren't having sermons preached. They were experiencing that. But there was this mindset that there was something super special and unique about the sacraments that that the word just couldn't accomplish. The preaching just couldn't accomplish. And it, it was a visible change. Like sometimes it would be kids that I would have to like. I'd have to bust because they're swearing and they're cheating in games and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden Thursday morning rolls around in the morning after communion. And they're like, you know, it's like St. Joe here. They're, they're like perfect little angels. Right. So like I've got faith now. Right. Like now, now I've got faith and they treated it like, um, and then some people treat it like it's almost like a, like a magic elixir. Like, oh yeah, it's been really rough. I haven't taken communion in a while. Right. Like, oh, yeah, I'm really, really in a dark place right now. My faith is really suffering, but we're doing communion next week. So I think I can make it like yeah. that's a perspective that I've I've heard. And like in some senses, when I was in college and in, in early stages of seminary, like I sort of had that perspective. So we just have to remember, we have to look at where the scriptures place the emphasis. Like communion is an important thing. I am not of the of the opinion that it should be done once a month. If I had my way, it would be done every single week. But you can also elevate it to a place that God did not intend it to be elevated right, to, exactly. which is above the preaching of the word. It should it should always be subordinate to and an extension of the preaching of the word. Yes. Well said. So many misunderstandings. So yeah. our time is quickly fading. But can I have your permission to engage in a quick sidebar? Let's do it. 
So I bring this up because I think it's it's the right entry point. You'd mentioned something in the course of talking about Beza here about order of service. Can I just say that I have this really strongly increasing conviction that in your Lord's Day order of worship, when after the call to worship, it should just be straight up worship. Yeah. No more announcements, no more anything else except like moving from worship through music to prayer, public prayer, right. private prayer to the the word. Oh my word is not only I think is that how God would want us to worship, especially because we're we're trying to focus ourselves in that time. But when you disrupt that, it's just it just messes everything up. Yeah. Honestly, I don't know how else, how else to say. It. It's not that God isn't working, but it can be so disruptive to a service when you you spend some time curating music, building in a way not where you're manufacturing worship, but you are focusing people and yourself on the Lord Himself. And then between that and like a sermon, for instance, to just launch in all the, to these logistics. Yeah. I don't know what your feelings are on that, but th- that's my growing conviction. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. And, and the analogy that I, I like to use is, you know, if you think of like your typical courtroom drama, right? You think about like a movie where there's some sort of trial taking place. And prior to the trial, like everyone's in the courtroom, they're all mulling about, they're buzzing. There's probably some people making some jokes. People are checking their phone. You know, you got like that guy in the back reading the newspaper. Everybody's doing their own thing. And then the that the bailiff announces all rise. The judge walks in and there's a certain level of ceremony to it. And as soon as he sits down, everybody else sits down. And all of a sudden, the tenor of the right. room is very different. That judge is in control. He's presiding over that that trial or that hearing or whatever it is. And then at the end of the day, when they recess or dismiss, the bailiff says all rise. Everybody rises and it's still quiet. And as soon as that judge leaves the room, all the buzz starts up again. Then the reporters start asking questions. People start getting out their phones. There's people joking and, and talking. And that's that's an analogy for the way that the worship service should work. When when the pastor or whoever is giving the call to worship, right, different, different traditions would say different people have authority to do that. But when the call to worship is issued, the summons is issued to come into the court of the Lord and to stand at right. attention for the covenant Lord, it's a different reality than it was a minute before, right? So the the, the announcements, that that's part of why Dr. Beaky is talking about serious preachers, right? People who aren't, right on. as we said, like, I don't think he's opposed to a well-timed joke that adds to the significance of the sermon. But these guys who get up there and treat... Uh, treat the sermon like it's their own personal evening at the improv, you know, that's just not appropriate. So I, right. I'm with you 100%. Excellent. Well, I'm glad we're in agreement. Let's let's finish on this because I want to throw this out. This is something that Beaky writes about and concerning Beza that I think is so intensely practical, so many parallels, especially for those of us interacting on the internet. And so he has a little section at the end of this chapter on instruction to the faithful preacher on how to preach and stand against sin. So let me just quickly give the three things that he says are the instruction on how to do that. He says, number one, ask God for a spirit of discernment, not to reprove anything lightly without knowing and understanding the fact that he is reproving. Yeah. This is like awesome. That, that, if we just did that, so much of our Facebook and Twitter conversations would be so much greatly improved. So yeah. that's the first thing. Second thing is ask God for the true use of the language of God, not just to speak, but to speak frankly. And then finally, number three, close his ears to all threats and respect for persons and listen to the Lord who's admonishing them. I just found these three things to be so wonderfully straightforward and frank, as he would say, and brilliant in the precision in which they could direct us toward a really thoughtful and biblical God-honoring interaction. I think especially online. I know these were for pastors in particular in his day and age, but how much more so for anybody who's engaging with anybody else yeah. on the internet or in person, for that matter. Yeah, that's a good uh, a good note and corrective for not just uh, the pastors in our audience, but I think for all of us, because yeah. to varying degrees, we all have a platform, right? You and I have this podcast. I have my blog. I have my interactions in the in the Reform Pub. We have interactions that we have with people at work. Um, different people have different influential positions in their church or in their community, and so these correctives are these points to remember. I think are good practical steps for all of us. This again, just shows that it's wonderful to have a book like this where Beaky is going to unpack all these great examples because it really is changing my perspective on some of these guys, because I did often think of Beza as like, here's an eggheaded dude yeah. who's really intelligent, but he's just chilling and writing some high end theology. And it's wonderful to think about 
But you know, the average person is going to be like, why do I need this? Yeah. Why, why would I even spend my time trying to research yeah. this? So it's just great that here embedded in the midst of that is my understanding that here he was as a pastor. Again, like these dudes were pastors first. So they were thinking about theology, but almost in so much as it only applied to the way in which they could preach and live out their lives experientially for Jesus Christ yeah. and administer the sacraments and the word to their congregations. So in many ways, we it's almost like you can take the, the theology, I guess, out of the preacher, but you can't take the preacher out of the theology. Right. So we just don't want to dissect those and pull them apart in such a way where we just make them these kind of like scholastic theologians without really the loving kindness that they exhibit toward the congregation because of their theology. Right. Yeah, that's a good word. So I think uh, given the constraints of time, we're going to skip spiritual conferencing for this week. But I'm pretty excited about this, Jesse. We are making some changes to our website. So we've taken the reform standard and uh, the public domain, and we have collapsed them all into a single website. And the goal or the objective for that is to have a single reform brotherhood resource uh, that has all of our different audio resources that we've produced um, and to be able to index those and cross-link them and really provide a omnibus of resources that we have yes. produced that can be, uh, you know, indexed and searchable. And so you can go there, you can find all the things we've talked about. You can click on a particular scripture and it'll bring up all the different episodes that we've, we've used that scripture in. Now this is a long-term project. It's going to take a long time to get there, but check it out. Reformbrotherhood.com. Um, send your friends, send your family, uh, write the link on a post-it note and stick it to your boss's door. Uh, leave leave business cards at the bus stop, uh, just everywhere that you can think of. We would love to see a spike in our traffic, not because of any sort of uh, pride or anything like that. We don't make any money off of clicks or views or anything like that. But because I think that through our podcast, we preach the gospel on a regular basis. And so it's an opportunity for people to hear the gospel when they listen to our show. I love it. Our show's... I love it. Couldn't have said it better. By the way, we are such like nerds knitted together with the same heart because I was really hoping, honestly, I was thinking when you started talking, I was really hoping you would use the word omnibus. <laughs> and if you didn't, I was going to shout it out. So really, this is once again engaged me at every particular level. And I'm just so happy right now. We're so happy. We're going to get matching tattoos, but it's not going to be the Reformed <laughs> Brotherhood logo. It's just going to be the word omnibus. I don't know where yet. Let's make it happen. Yeah. Forearm, forearm, maybe. I, I my forearms are already used up. I have to find a different spot. No, we. Oh no, we got to go outside forearm. Oh, on the yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. more like Popeye. Maybe style. on the fists, like it'll be like Omni on one side <laughs> and Bus on the other side. Bus like, on the other. Omnibus. <laughs> Listen, that would be so bad, and I mean that in a good way. Like, can you imagine if you just saw a dude that had like Omnibus tattooed across his knuckles? Yeah, ex- you'd be like, that guy's got a story. Except you'd be there'd be that guy, and you'd be like, someone walk up to you, be like, uh, why did you get the word bus tattooed on your hand? Yeah, just bus. And, and then you like, break it out. You look like, at my right fist. Omnibus. Boom. Yes. All right. Now that we've agree, that- we've nerded out to the supreme, we certainly have. Well, until next time. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Uh, what if I'm fine?